Welcome to Smarter Market, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABEX Technologies, and I'm Todd Buchholz. You can follow me at econtodd or econtodd.com. Over the coming weeks, we will continue to examine the crisis of capitalism and whether or not smarter markets is the antidote to a more inclusive and sustainable future. My guest on this week's episode is none other than Josh Crum, founder and CEO of ABEX Technologies and ABEX Exchange. Josh is on a mission to re-examine our global market and technology systems so we are able to achieve the 2030 Paris Agreement objectives ahead of schedule and be halfway to carbon neutrality with a fully developed path to neutrality by 2029. ESG, or Environment, Social, and Governance, presents quite possibly the single greatest market opportunity since cloud computing, with sustainability funds on Wall Street already approaching $2 trillion. Today is the first time Josh has been interviewed on Smarter Markets, and I'm delighted to bring him into the conversation we started with Stefan Wheeler and Arjun Murthy over the last couple of weeks. Josh and I will be boldly crossing the bridge to renewable energy and an accelerated carbon-neutral future next. And now, back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. We're coming off two fantastic energy transition discussions in the past two weeks with Stefan Wheeler and Arjun Murray. And Josh Crumb, you're not only the third part of this series, you're also one of the co-founders of this podcast. You're responsible for all the intelligence and all the blather that's gone on in the last couple of weeks. And let's face it, this is the most fascinating time for commodities, for ESG, perhaps in our lifetimes. Just recently, we see in the commodity pits that iron ore, timber, palladium have hit all-time highs. At the same time, the entire world is wondering, are we ever going to run out of these sorts of commodities? Can we mine and develop such commodities without spoiling the planet? So we've got some awfully important issues to put on the table. But I'd like to ask you before we get started, why is it that you got interested in creating such a podcast at this moment in time? So maybe the best way to start to talk about the podcast is, is maybe give a little brief background of, of my own background. I am a mining engineer originally, but I'm also have graduate done uh, graduate work in both economics as well as political risk and international political economy. And so ultimately, I guess I'm sort of a systems guy. I like to see how many different pieces uh, work together. Uh, when you're in the natural resources space, when you're developing a project, you have you know just unbelievable amounts of geologic and technical risk, as well as economic risk, and and of course you know political risk. 
And so when I think about the podcast and, and you know, really some of the very big energy transition themes that we'll be talking about uh, through this episode and, and beyond, you know, these are some very, very big, you know, multifaceted challenges that I think it requires, you know, systems thinking across many different disciplines. Ultimately, you know, if we're looking at at the goals of creating, you know, carbon neutrality globally over the next 20, 30 years, you know, this is this is essentially one of the biggest engineering projects of of really of all human history. If you think about where we're at now with probably about 80% of our global energy needs coming from hydrocarbons and, and maybe even stepping back a little bit further, I mean a lot of the academic research, you know, right to the to the levels of like kind of what makes us human uh, is our ability to harness external uh, energy for our our food sources and communications. And so we're we're really as a species trying to you know basically change our entire you know way of burning things and change you know the entire global economy at the same time. So so these are enormous engineering challenges. They're enormous political challenges. But at, at this point, I think this is something that the world's setting out to do. So the bigger you know the point of this podcast is, I guess as an engineer, you know I I probably try to minimize my my public speaking. Uh, and as an economist, I think people try to minimize listening to you know economists like us speak. <laughs> so so I think um, you know for me it's been you know throughout the pieces of my career I've I've been very fortunate to work with you know people like uh, Jeff Curry and and the Lundin group and Robert Friedland. And so, you know, having, I guess, having access to these types of networks, I wanted to make sure that, you know, some of the smartest, some of the biggest thinkers in the world are, are given the platform to have these really hard conversations. Uh, so that's really the background of the podcast and, and what we're trying to do. You know, it's not just the energy transition, but also uh, a lot of the, the technological, the, the, the software and internet systems that are constantly changing and evolving that will have to be part of, you know, that have a huge role to play in this energy transition. And talking about things like digital identity and privacy, uh, so there's all sorts of pieces to this. You know what we've been trying to do is build these the little mini series, right? trying to tackle all of the little, you know, not little, but <laughs> tackle some very big ideas and very big things and little pieces, uh, so that over time these voices, you know, we can start putting these pieces together. So, so that's really, I guess, my background as you know, as a multi-system, you know, sort of uh, thinker and trying to put together uh, a podcast similarly. Clearly, you want to be on the cutting edge of all sorts of things, and hopefully we won't be slitting our wrists in the meantime with that edge. But Josh, for those of us who, who haven't gotten a chance to know you, I think it would be interesting to find out where did you grow up and where are you speaking to us from today? Well, I grew up in, in Colorado, uh, so originally from, from Greeley, Colorado, so I'm uh, a little uh, secret I'm now telling the entire world as as a, as a mining person. I actually come from the flatlands of Colorado. So one of my uh, mining engineering colleagues early on uh, said that you know I always pretended to be a mountain man, but I'm really a pig farmer. And, and then I went to the uh, Colorado School of Mines. And after that, I really you know have been involved in the resource industry from lots of different angles for you know really the last 20 years. So started out in engineering design uh, and project management. You know worked out at a gold mine. I traveled and lived uh, in Russia for a while. And, you know, eventually got into the corporate side of, of mining uh, with the Lundin Group and uh, working in uh, M&A and project valuation sort of, you know, all over the world. And then I, uh, you know, just around or just after the financial crisis, I moved over to Goldman Sachs, where I was the head of metals research and strategy under Jeff Curry. So the last uh, couple episodes that we've had were actually some of my former colleagues. 
Um, so I was on the metals side of Jeff's team when Stefan was was the head of oil research, and then Arjun Murray was you know leading the equity research at that time. So so really, you know, these are two two individuals that I just highly respect, and I, I think there's really nothing I can add to the conversation of you know the big energy companies or or the macro economy as far as energy. But you know what I would try to add is is some of the you know some of the market structure and some of the software systems that are going to be needed during this energy transition. So you know happy to talk about some of those things as well. Josh, just going back a little bit, it wasn't too many years ago when peak oil was a common term, and now if you do a search on Google of the usage of that phrase peak oil, it doesn't crop up much anymore. I'm just curious as someone trained as an engineer who's also trained in economics. What were you thinking those not many years ago when so many purportedly brilliant people were telling us that the world was running out of energy? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a great question. And I think, again, it's another kind of part of this, this podcast is have these types of conversations. Because I, I will readily admit, you know, back in the, the 2006, 2007 days, in fact, one of the reasons that I ended up at Goldman Sachs is, is I was kind of predicted the, the global financial crisis as well as the, you know, shooting up to $150 oil. So I had built a lot of models that predicted that. And I was, you know, very, very bearish of the global economy and the global financial system be, because of that. And I guess when some of my predictions played out, that's actually how I got to know Jeff Curry and, and ended up working over at Goldman. So, you know, I probably came from that a little bit more conservative economic thinking, uh, you know, we're, we're running out of oil. But I think, you know, it's something that really changed in, in my worldview over the last 10 years. And, and, and really, it was, it was really in 2011, 2012, is, is the shale oil revolution and, and, and looking at, you know, kind of always being skeptical about the, the growth rates of shale and, and maybe other, you know, skeptical and, you know, sort of broader technology senses as well. And I think that over the last, you know, 10 years, I, I think I've, I've come to think that there's actually a lot more hope, <laughs> you know, than, than these, I guess, sort of constantly every at the end of, uh, end of every commodity cycle, you know, sort of, you know, thinking about, you know, the limits to growth. And so, you know, Jeff Curry had a great line. He always said, give an engineer enough time and enough money and you can solve anything. This is a very, very big, you know, when, when we're talking about decarbonization, this is a very big uh, problem that's going to need uh, a lot of money. And we, you know, and if we want to meet the goals, uh, not a lot of time. But ultimately, I am hopeful. And, and, and that's sort of, you know, some of the things I want to talk through on this episode. It does seem to me that it's easy to forget how markets act. There's that saying that the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones or ran out of rocks. It was because we found alternatives that were uh, more efficient. In the same way, when prices go up for a particular commodity, it creates incentives to discover and develop more or to discover and develop substitutes, uh, which makes this ever more complex as we get into it. Now, I wanted to get into some, some comments I've heard you make regarding 2029, that not only could we achieve the Paris climate goals of 2030 and 2050, but that we could make it a mission to wrap it all up in, what, eight years? Now, engineers are supposed to be pretty practical guys. Have you left that all behind? How is this possible? <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think, you know, coming back to that, that hope and vision, I, I think, you know, the, my, my sort of, you know, the call for the 29ers, uh, what, what that's all about is, is, of course, looking back at JFK's moonshot speech, which he actually gave in, in 1962. 
and and talking about you know putting you know this this great human you know global uh, sort of engineering problem of of putting a man on the moon. And it was you know it was before the end of the decade. It was very specifically we're going to do this by 1969. So when I look at at what's happened in the global economy over the last a year or two, and and really what what's you know happening in upstream industry that I'm kind of you know the the acceleration and the conversations about decarbonization that we're having really by the week to sort of you know organize our, ourselves on a global level i think the you know the very specific thing that i want to point out about you know my my view and, and my mission of the 29ers is this needs to be done by markets you you mentioned the 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 point about sort of to, to paraphrase you know nothing solves a, a high price like a high price you know but we need that price signal we need to price the externalities. We need to price the goals that we're trying to achieve. And in that way, I think the market can do all sorts of good things. And so you know, one, of the other, one of the other pieces of that, and, and going back to the JFK's speech, was that you know, this is global. You know, even though this, this was in the middle of a you know, very fierce you know, Cold War space race, it was very specifically mentioned that this is a global challenge and a global mission that we all need to be cooperating in. And I think that's a big part of it as well, is this is, you know, in my view, we're at a time where, you know, on both sides, you know, we've gotten so political in so many ways. And when I look at the resource industry and, and look at the goals of the Paris Accords, you know, you're looking at, you know, part of it is saying, you know, this is absolutely impossible. We can never do this. This is sort of the almost the, you know, the peak oil, you know, type thinking. But then on the other side, you know, I guess, you know, if you get to the more extreme sides of the left, you know, they don't even want to talk about carbon neutral. They, they want to just stop growth altogether. And so really, we're in this really challenging political environment where the call is, you know, look, this is happening. Uh, if we look at, you know, particularly if you look at the announcements that China made late last year about their goals for 2060, you know, if, we're, if we were taught anything in, in, in global markets the last 10, 15 years is when China says they want to do something, they, they essentially, you know, they, they, they mobilize their economy to do it. And so if you look at, at China being about a, a third of the world's global emissions, and of those emissions, probably 40% of that is upstream commodities and er early pieces of the supply chain, you know, when they say that they're going to decarbonize or, or go to net zero, you know, this, this is something that, you know, any holdout is really going to get overrun at this point. You know, the global economy, the incentives of the market are going to move this direction. And so I believe this is one of the greatest investment opportunities, uh, really, you know, just like it's one of the greatest engineering opportunities, it's one of the greatest investment opportunities of all time. And so we really need to get on with the thinking of, okay, you know, this sounds really, really hard, but that's why we should do it. And, and that's, that's where the phenomenal wealth is going to get created is to just, you know, let's take the next eight years and let's, let's get building. So that, that, that's really the mentality uh, that I wanted to express with the call to the 29ers. Josh, you make an excellent point about how things can become so politicized. I remember around the time of the financial meltdown, I was deeply involved in the markets. I also, at the time, was a fellow at Cambridge University. And I went to a meeting with faculty, and we were talking about sustainability. And I realized, and this reminded me, by the way, of Winston Churchill's purported saying that the U.S. and Britain are one people separated only by a common language. What I realized in going to Cambridge was that there was a difference in the language. When most Americans were, would speak of sustainability and sustainable growth, they were talking about growing without despoiling the planet. But among intellectuals in the UK and in Europe, it was not a matter of growing 
without creating pollution or climate change. It was a matter of stop the growth. Do not pursue a higher per capita GDP. And these issues become very thorny. And I, I praise your optimism in thinking, and I agree with your optimism, that we can create greater growth, a higher standard of living, but do so in sustainable ways in which case the planet and long-term life is better off. After all, if you look at the environmental conditions in poor countries compared to wealthy countries, wealthier countries have less pollution because we can afford to invest more in technologies that reduce it. You look at the Soviet Union when it existed, it was far behind the U.S. in wealth, in GDP per capita, in standard of living, in all sorts of ways, and it was fetid and polluted, and the water could not be drunk, and the air could not be breathed. So I think the, the point you make, that there are ways, I don't know how to design them, but markets will develop and evolve in order to capture productivity improvements and create a higher standard of living without necessarily making it more difficult to breathe and to eat and expect the planet to survive. Absolutely. And, and, and really, it comes down to, again, it's, it's, it's pricing these externalities. So, so we, we know there's going to be a lot of costs, you know, ju just as, as the urbanization of, of, of China, really, in you know, the earlier part of this millennium, you know, created a lot of changes globally. And, and the costs and, and benefits weren't always, you know, very well thought out in advance. And, and so really, this, this next investment cycle, so if I, if I look at the first sort of 10 years of millennium and I, and I look at the, you know, the BRICS themes, the, you know, which was really driven by, by Chinese urbanization, but also other emerging markets you know, globally, um, you know, this was a very resource-intensive time, and there was a lot of dis disruption to, you know, to the, you know, particularly the middle class of of the OECD uh, countries. And then, you know, we had this this next sort of decade of investment, you know, really around the rise of cloud and mobile, and, and really connecting uh, this global middle class to the internet through handheld phones. So these were two incredible investment trends the last 20 years, but they also created a lot of social externalities, both environmental and social externalities. So really, you know, building on both of those themes the next decade, you know, because we do have a connected global planet, you know, th this is where we really want to think about the IT and the, the infrastructure and the communication systems to achieve these goals. You know, now that we do have a, a globally connected world and we've had a chance to think through a lot of the uh, the social, you know, backlash and the challenges that have come with these these two investment waves. You know, all of this is going to be heightened in this third investment cycle, and so we really need to to figure out ways to be transparent, be decentralized, bring the best data forward to to solve you know the, these very big issues. Well, every once in a while, Josh, I have an urge to be blunt, and so I'm going to be blunt now. Tell me what you're thinking about China in terms of its real goals, sincerity in controlling emissions and so on? Is it because the Beijing government knows that if people can't breathe, there'll be a revolution? Is it because they think that the economy uh, will perform better in the long term if they have better environmental conditions? Or is it that they actually give a damn about the rest of the world and whether they're creating too many externalities that make people choke uh, from Japan to Seattle to India on their fumes. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, you know, very big questions and very important questions. 
you know, and, and first off, again, this is the point of the podcast. I'm probably the most, not the most qualified to speak on these. Um, but I guess, again, my point is, you know, of the podcast is, is, you know, I believe that's an excellent mini series to go on and, and, and we will tackle that question specifically. I mean, as, as Avex Technologies, as a sponsor of the podcast, you know, two of the largest investors are, are probably one of the biggest China bulls and one of the biggest China bears. So, so we do have, you know, a very wide, uh, range of views. You know, my personal view, you know, I did have the opportunity back in, in 2007 to have dinner with the CEO of the Chinese State Grid, which is probably one of the largest uh, employers in the world, probably one of the you know largest pieces of infrastructure, one of the largest you know set of customers in the world. And, and it was really a fascinating conversation. And we really had the conversation about, is there enough copper? What is the path of renewables? And, you know, that's that's going on 14 years ago. And I don't believe these same types of conversations have been had to the extent they were thinking about that 14, you know, 20 years ago. I, you know, I, I had a similar conversation in 2010 with the UK uh, Minister of Energy and Environment and started talking about copper mining and, and they had no idea what I was talking about. You know, I think there is in the culture and the planning, there is this type of thinking. But but, but that all said, you know, particularly over the last five years, you know, it was it was not only the environment, but it was also non-performing loans. You know, you saw a lot of, you know, central Chinese government mandates to try to rein in some of the, you know, very heavy commodity infrastructure investments of the regions. And they weren't always that successful. Now, directionally, I think they were successful and they were trying to solve both the non-performing loan issues of really over-utilization of, of resource capacity as well as the environmental issues. So again, I think this is a, you know, it's it's a very complex question and, you know, for a third of the world's uh, emissions. But, you know, I do believe it's very sincere uh, that they're trying to upgrade their quality of GDP growth as well. Now, from the bottoms up investor point of view, environmental, social, corporate governments, ESG has obviously become enormously interesting and popular as an investment style. Having passed about $2 trillion in assets, I guess it's one of the fastest growing trends. What do you think is driving this and where is it headed? Yeah, so there, there's probably you know two or three pieces to that. One of it is purely the, you know, some a, a lot of papers recently on the ability of companies that score high on ESG to be, you know, adapting to the global economy, uh, managing risks better, particularly if you look at the governance side, you know, and if we look at some of the environmental risks of, of having stranded assets on the balance sheet and some of the social risks uh, that we're seeing in a lot of uh, sort of, you know, social unrest globally, you know, these are very big risks for companies. So, so not only has uh, the investment style, you know, really outperformed and the companies uh, outperformed, but also, you know, they're seen as managing risks better. Now, that all said, you know, just from a pure top-down sort of macro ES, you know, portfolio ESG perspective, it's still not certain that these companies have done well because they're ESG or because they're more heavily geared towards, you know, the Microsofts and, you know, Googles of the world, uh, which, which obviously have, you know, very high business margins, a lot of growth, and naturally a lot of adaptation in their business model. So, you know, if you look at an ESG basket, you know, versus you know, S&P 500 basket, they're not all that different in, in many ways. And so, so that's, that's one of the parts that's happening now. And I think we need to get better at, at beyond just, you know, picking Silicon Valley, you know, well-performing Silicon Valley companies to allocate capital to, you know, you know, ultimately we need the big upstream resource companies, you know, as we're going through this energy transition. So we need to capitalize them, not as dirty companies, but the companies that actually have the ability to do better and, and probably have the most impact from doing better. 
Do you think that commodity markets can be recipients of ESG dollars? And how would you perceive that? I mean, I I think about British Petroleum, which tried to rebrand itself beyond petroleum some years ago, and now I think more sincerely is, is taking action in that way. At the same time, you've got companies that seem very techy and very ESG friendly. And then, excuse the pun, if you look under the hood, you wonder whether buying an EV Tesla is really good for the environment through the life cycle. Like what rare earths and precious metals have to be mined in order to create the lithium batteries and so on. So how do we get a more sophisticated view of ESG that goes beyond taking a Sharpie and crossing out Philip Morris or Exxon based on their behavior 20 or 50 years ago. Absolutely. And, and that, that is, again, one of the central questions of this podcast is, is talking you know, and, and also giving a platform to the resource industry to really be transparent about you know, what they're really trying to do. So, you know, um, before I answer the, the rest of that question, I should probably answer a, a bit of the last question as well. So, so beyond just the top-down sort of portfolio construction trends and, and in risk management, the other piece that I think is critically important is, is demographics and really the, the mindset of, of the millennial, you know, buyer. And so I was, again, you know, very fortunate that, you know, it's kind of when I grew up and went to university, you know, I, I'm, I'm in that, uh, that tweener generation between Gen X and, and millennial where, you know, my youth was fully analog and sort of pre-digital, but almost all of my, you know, university and career has been fully digital. So, so I've been able to see a little bit of both, you know, a pretty good window into both worlds. You know, even my older brother you really didn't even use email until he was in his 30s. And then my younger sister was sort of digitally native. And so I've been, you know, very, very fortunate to be able to sort of straddle these, these two generations. And it's very clear that the more connected and more, you know, globally connected digital generation is thinking, you know, very much about sustainability. This isn't just a consumer trend that's driving change, but it's also becoming, you know, particularly as millennials really, be, you know, take on more senior roles in the workplace, you know, even internally in 2007, 2010, some of the first movers in the tech companies to really be focused, you know, really on ESG, you know, some of those sort of young sort of change the world activists are now, you know, senior managers and, and running, you know, dr- really driving change in their organization. And so, so I think that's in- incredibly important. And so, you know, getting back to your, your question about, you know, what, what the commodity industry, you know, can do, you know, again, first off, that change has also been happening within the commodity companies. And so that, that, that generational change. And, you know, when I went to the Colorado School of Mines, again, in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, we had, you know, bumper stickers like, you know, Earth first, you know, we'll mine other planets later, you know, and there, there was this sort of pushback over the over environmentalism. But now, and I don't know the stats off the top of my head, but I would say there's probably more people going to the Colorado School of Mines, you know, focused on really, you know, climate science and, and being part of the solution than that kind of that, that attitude of, you know, of sort of fighting the greens. Josh, have you ever been to the Diggers and Dealers uh, big meeting in Kalgoorlie, Australia? So I actually haven't. So, so I guess being in Canadian capital markets, I, I, I'd spent a lot more time in like the PDAC, but, but, but I haven't been to that one. Ah, well, it's a fascinating place. And I, I gave a keynote lecture there some years ago. And it seems like it used to be the highlight of going to Kalgoorlie was to explore the old corrugated steel brothels uh, that had been there since the early mining days. My understanding now is that now the bigger tourist attractions have to do with examining 
learning how to apply ESG to mining and materials and metals. But the question I have, is there anyone or any institution that is engaged in a kind of life cycle analysis of companies and products? I, I gave the example of, of Tesla and asking whether an EV car, when you take into account what goes into it and where the energy comes from, from the outlet into the vehicle, what the life cycle impact is environmentally. There are other examples. I mean, back in the 1980s or 90s, I think young parents were shamed if they use disposable diapers for their babies. They were told, oh, you should use cloth diapers. And then after some time, some folk, enterprising folks did a life cycle analysis of, well, if you use cloth diapers, then the diaper truck has to come by, pick up the diapers. Well, that uses gasoline. And then you bring them to some cleaning facility that then uses soap and uses water. So by the time you're done recycling cloth diapers, it's unclear that, in fact, it's better for the environment uh, than the disposable sort made of plastic. So anyway, the question is, is there anyone or any institution that's looking at those sorts of analyses to give some guidance to ESG investors and give guidance to consumers who might also be interested. Yes, for sure. And, and I guess that's the other part of the momentum that I've, I've seen the last, you know, particularly the last six months, accelerating significantly, you know, because we do work with, you know, the global energy uh, industry and global LNG industry in, you know, carbon neutral working groups you know, we're, we're really trying to tackle those issues. But what I would say is, is most encouraging uh, is not only the, the coordination and communication between the companies all working together to try to solve this, but also really thinking through what kind of market systems, you know, and what kind of IT systems, whether it's, you know, open source or, or open market, you know, how do we actually bring the best information forward? You know, and, and I've, you know, as an engineer, I've done those sort of top-down studies and, and, and I've tried to apply, you know, a lot of, you know, econometrics and, you know, engineering first principles to try to design something from the top down and do those life cycle analysis. And they are very useful, but what's even more useful is if you price those externalities and let the market, you know, coordinate better. So when I look at, you know, what we're, what we're trying to do and, you know, with Smarter Markets, not only in the podcast, but what we're trying to do in our company, it's really not trying to, you know, push a, a perfect solution, but create market structures to allow the market to bring the best solutions and, and price these externalities through the life cycle. In some past episodes of Smarter Markets, uh, some have talked about grading and trading various commodities based on their ESG specifications. There may be darker versions of copper and lighter versions, so to speak. I, I suppose in the world of oil, you have light sweet and sour crude and so on, different gradations and different prices. What are we supposed to think of that? Is, is there a viable way in which such distinctions can be made and capitalized on? I believe so. And, and I think this is really where the market's headed. Again, because of the demand, you know, both from, you know, the, the consumers as well as, you know, really executives in these supply chains, all of these heavy industries are really, really sharpening the pencil right now on trying to, you know, account for emissions and sort of the ESG goals. Now, you know, back to your question, one of the problems with the commodity, you know, is by definition, it's a commodity. It's supposed to be fungible. It's supposed to be interchangeable with everything else. And this is a good and a bad thing for the upstream, you know, uh, resource industry. You know, it's a good thing in that at the end of the day, you know, these are companies that take a lot of price risk 
you know, to the top line uh, that can be very volatile. And so by having a more fungible liquid market where you can, you know, sell forward and, and hedge your production in an interchangeable market, that actually, uh, you know, provides a, a huge benefit for the commodity producers. So if you look at something like LNG, you know, we, we're going to need something like $10 trillion in new LNG infrastructure to meet the growth uh, projections. But right now, without long-term offtake agreements and without really a standard price to sell forward in the market, it's getting very difficult to capitalize these investments. So, so you know, we really need that fungibility and standard price to allow capital to, to transfer properly. But on the same time, there's also going to be a very wide range of ESG uh, scores that come along with you know, what's otherwise a, a fungible commodity. It's really balancing that for the upstream producer and that you can have better capitalization and better risk management if your product is sort of max fungible. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if you are doing better, you should be paid for doing better. So, so this is the balance that we're always trying to find. So, so one of the things that we've been working on, again, with, with the global energy industry is really thinking about, okay, so how do we sort of, you know, break these into different pieces where the commodity can be most fungible, but you can also get paid most for the things that you're doing on a marketable, you know, high ESG score product. Josh, you had mentioned it and, and others too, the, the issue of putting a price on carbon, and by carbon, we're not talking about you know CO two canisters for Soda Stream. Uh, we're talking about something else. How do we create a price for carbon? What what do people mean by that? And and to what extent does federal governments have a role in determining a price on carbon? So ultimately, I think governments are going to be very important and, and, and have been. You know, if you if you look at the you know emissions trading schemes in, in Europe, for instance, and and even before that, some of, you know some of the other cap and trade systems that, that we've had in the U.S. You know, this has been a very efficient market uh, mechanism on a regional perspective to move the industry forward. However, the the problem is, you know, when you're talking about a global market, that that global coordination is going to become more and more difficult. So, you know, that that's what's, you know, given rise to a voluntary market. So if you look at companies like Microsoft and, and what they've been doing in the voluntary markets, you know, to, to offset their emissions, you know, they didn't they didn't sort of wait for, you know, US-wide mandates. They just sort of got on with it and started, you know, doing their own accounting and setting their own internal prices and working towards that. So we've been very active again in that space as well, where you're gonna have a lot of governments doing very, very different things. And so this is giving given rise to a to a voluntary market. Josh, when you have conversations with your former colleagues at Goldman and and elsewhere about these new kinds of markets that you're trying to develop and creating platforms for, what sort of reaction do you get? I mean, these days, there's so much news about FANG stocks, about social media, obviously about cryptocurrency and the like. Is it possible to get top talent involved in the commodity space in financial technology? I believe uh, that we can. I mean, you know, first off, you know, I guess, you know, we're very proud of the team that we've put together at Abex. But again, it's around this, I think it's around the mission of, of what we're trying to do, both for the industry and, and for the markets and in, in helping develop these you know, critically important uh, price signals. And, and, and I also probably want to touch on on something that I guess as a as a sort of a serial entrepreneur that's you know really been jumping into some very big you know business ideas, very big markets. 
you know, one of the other things that I find, I guess, challenging is that over the, you know, particularly over the past decade, we've seen, you know, very high centralization in our financial industry. You know, whether we're looking at market infrastructure companies like exchanges or, of course, you know, banks, central banks, you know, so there, there's been a lot of consolidation, you know, and, and a lot of that came out of the financial crisis where combined with it with an IT cycle that, you know, yes, you know, there's a lot of efficiencies in, in centralizing a lot of data, but at the same time, it can kind of, you know, stifle competition. And, and so really now we're at a point where, you know, what should be some of our pillars of capital markets and competition are actually becoming, you know, very oligopolistic. And I view, you know, I believe, you know, in the sort of, you know, creative destruction and, and entrepreneurs that, that can sort of have the diseconomies of scale to move into big problems. So yes, I think it starts with the mission and it starts with the, the t- you know, type of people you have. And I do believe that a lot of people want to work in, in fintechs and startups uh, that are going after these very big challenges. Well, and I think now is the time, if you can't get interest at a point where so many commodity prices are reaching all-time highs, or at least decade highs, this is the perfect storm. And you add to that, and I actually wanted to get your views on whether Federal Reserve Board policy uh, will play a role in attracting interest from both from the point of view of building such platforms, but also investor interest. Jerome Powell at the Federal Reserve Board, former colleague of mine from the Treasury Department, seems he might as well be the spokesperson for modern monetary theory. He is rewriting monetary theory with some people would call it reckless abandon. I suppose he thinks it's prudent based on the fact that the unemployment rate in the U.S. is still around 6% and he still thinks there's vast amounts of excess resource and supply of labor on the sidelines that can be brought in if the economy uh, is allowed to run hotter. At the same time, some people legitimately, I think, are worried that the risks for inflation have gone up. Traditionally, we would think of gold as a good hedge against inflation. Now, of course, cryptocurrencies may be there, but then other commodities, metals and the like. So what's your view of Federal Reserve Board policy and its possible impact on the markets that you follow so closely? Well, this this certainly is, is a challenging one. You know, in many ways, it has been that sort of access to cheap credit uh, that's allowed the economy to continue to grow. But you know, I do believe there's something you know unsustainable in it, uh, and that we're sort of developing this economy where it's you know it, the price signal is being lost in many ways, uh, where sort of access to credit you know becomes more important than profit, particularly at the smaller scale sort of entrepreneurial you know challenging companies. And so so that to me is is, is problematic. As the bigger you get, the easier you you get you know access to cheap credit. You know we we sort of stifle competition in, in that. Way. So that, that's one issue. And of course, you also mentioned the inflation. You know, we have these very, very big issues that, you know, that we should be allocating capital towards. But at the same time, you see something like, you know, Dogecoin, you know, going to a, you know, $50 billion market cap, right? So, so the misallocation of capital, I think, is very problematic given what we actually need to try to achieve. And we need to be very efficient with that capital with those time and resources. And so, so again, like in my mind, that doesn't mean Let's go to a you know heavy you know top down central planning. Like I actually think it's being more decentralized and allowing more competition that's going to get there, rather than you know relying on more and more centralized you know sort of uh, central bank you know policies. Josh, a few minutes ago, you helped us define commodities as fungible. A bucket of sand should be equivalent to a bucket of sand, and so on. 
One of the hottest buzzwords these days is NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And of course, we see some, what, Jack Dorsey at Twitter sold his first tweet for some ungodly amount of money. I don't know whether he gave a, a little bit of that to Donald Trump, who probably helped keep Twitter alive over the last four years. But anyway, um, is there a world in which commodity producers might be selling products as NFTs from a technology perspective? How would that work? I, I do believe so. Absolutely. I mean, you know, ultimately what, what, what the NFT is, is it's a type of smart contract. You know, it's, it's sort of the, the fur, you know, furthering the path of digitization. And so, so when I, when I talk about a fungible commodity, just, you know, if you look at it as an example in the sort of the copper supply chain. So again, that sort of LME copper, uh, is, is meant to be the most fungible form of copper and, and it trades, you know, you know, a very, very efficient system uh, traded on the LME or the Shanghai futures exchange. But, you know, at the same time, that intermediate product, you know, the crude copper product before you get to the LME, uh, a copper concentrate isn't so fungible, right? It's going to have all sorts of different quality blends, locations, it's big and bulky. And so at the end of the day, you know, that, that copper concentrate is not as fungible as that copper cathode. And, and that's just talking about technical specs. Again, now you add environmental specs and, and you're going to see, you know, another wide range of marketability of, you know, of a crude commodity product. And so, you know, ultimately I think what, what is going to happen is that we are going to design sort of NFT structures that more and more information can be uh, captured at the, you know, at the earliest stages of the resource project. And I would say, you know, even before the copper concentrate, you know, you look at actually, you know, copper metal in the ground. Uh, you know, I, I believe there's a system in the future where we can track and trace that that resource, not only in, you know, new exploration models of, of geology through NFTs, you know, sort of pre-selling, you know, a royalty or a right on the, the copper in the ground, and then that right tracking all the way through the supply chain. So we know, you know, the ESG scores, we know the quality. So I think that that smart contract mechanism is going to be very important in the future. How important or how valuable can the blockchain be in these sorts of things? And when I say important, I had a conversation with the CEO of one of the major railroads, and we were talking about blockchain. And of course, we've all read and heard about how it could be valuable because the next time there is a, what, mad cow breakout, if we had adapted to blockchain, we could more easily identify the source. And we hear about blockchain can be used for the provenance of artwork and so on. What is the market failure today? that creates the opportunity for blockchain and commodities? What, what's not right that needs to be repaired or where there, there is a, a huge opportunity? Well, well, I think it's a huge opportunity because what it is, and, and I try to break it down you know, beyond just the sort of the buzzword of, of blockchain, you know, what is it specifically? What are the aspects of it that are going to sort of revolutionize the way we trade? And, and for me, it's, it's two pieces. It's digital identity, uh, self-sovereign identity, and then it's the actual open permissionless data store, an actual database that's encrypted and secured, but everybody's, you know, accessing the same information. And so, you know, there's a lot of efficiencies in bringing these like highly centralized data systems together. And so, you know, what we have today is, again, you know, sort of trending towards these larger oligopolies that have access to the most data, but they're still not necessarily interchangeable with each other. To solve the, the coordination problems that we need to solve to meet these very big goals over the next you know, 10, 20 years, 
we can't just assume that everyone's going to centralize their their databases into one cloud platform with the best AI, right? We're not just going to move the entire world onto AWS and have all the perfect data, you know, running through that system. You know, at the end of the day, you know, whether it's for regulatory reasons, competition, you know, there's going to be data structures everywhere. And so what we want to do is, is design the protocol layer, not necessarily where the application is. Uh, we want to design a protocol that allows everybody you know, the right incentives to bring their data to market while still keeping it secure for reasons that may that they may need, whether it's for, you know, bargaining reasons or for regulatory reasons. We need an encrypted and secure, you know, uh, data where we're not just centralizing it all in the hands of one player, be it a government or a very large tech company. And so, so what the blockchain does specifically that allows us to solve that coordination problem is this sort of decentralized data store tied to a very strong identity internet. And so this is a, a system that we've been investing in significantly because we think it, it has an ability to solve problems, uh, you know, th- these market coordination problems globally. Well, now, Josh, as long as we have you on the air today, one of the world's foremost experts in metals and, and mining, I, w- I wanted to ask you about what goes into EVs and battery technology, because we, we see copper prices, palladium prices, lithium, and, and so on, being driven by housing demand as well as EV demand. There's so much copper in cars and homes these days. Well, l- let me put it this way. Are you seeing some new potential replacements for the lithium batteries that power EVs? And if you do, will they be using different kinds of rare earths and metals than the sort that go into production today. This is a, a problem again. You know, better pricing is is going to help us solve a lot of these issues. But yeah, I mean, a lot of these metals will end up. You know, we'll, we'll constantly engineering and re-engineering. You know, based on the volatility of different commodity prices. You know, you, you look at it even a, even a product like cobalt. It probably would have been used a lot more than it is today. You know, even before this EV revolution, if it wasn't so volatile. And, and only have sort of a, a small source of supply sort of 15, 20 years ago. This is where we're trying to create commodity markets that are more fungible uh, so that we can have a better forward-looking view to make the right investments in, in the right metals is very important. You know, again, ultimately, I don't believe there's a shortage of, of any of these metals, be it base metals or precious metals. And in fact, if you look geologically, you know, what you typically have in most of these metals is a very flat supply curve, you know, just from a first principles perspective. You know, the types of uh, you know mineralization, the, the you know the, the fundamental cost structure of different types of mineralization. So yeah, there's always going to be a very low you know low on the cost curve because it's got you know very high grades or has many different polymetallic revenue inputs. You know, so th- those things never set the price. Those things are going to be profitable in really any scenario. But if you look across, you know, most geologic curves, you know, they're actually very flat on a global scale. So ultimately what it comes down to is it's politics. And these are very large developments. So when you're when it takes, you know, 10, 15 years to get a mining project off the ground, there's a lot of risks up front that you need to be aware of. So having the best price signals and being able to capitalize those projects early is very important. So there, there's never a shortage of minerals below the ground. It's usually the, the political and economics above the ground that becomes the problem. 
That brings up an interesting point because, you know, when I, when I was a kid, I loved maps and I'd look at maps, the Atlas of the World, and there was still a Soviet Union then. And uh, some of the pages of the Atlas would show you the natural resources. And the U.S., of course, was rich in wheat and other sorts of things. Uh, and uh, the Soviet Union with Ukraine was rich in wheat. But the Soviets seemed to have so many metals, and including bauxite. I had no idea what bauxite was when I was seven years old, but I was concerned that, you know, it was like going to be the kryptonite if there ever was a battle between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Thankfully, there was not a battle between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. If you Google where are rare earths or rare metals today, you'll come up with a chart that shows China at the top. My question, is it that China has vastly more than other countries, including the U.S., under the surface? Or is it that they've tapped into it and created the reserves because they might have different environmental standards? Because quite often you hear some people say, well, if we become too um, EV-oriented, for instance, we will become too beholden to the Chinese, as if that's the only place that you can get some of these rare metals. So set us straight. Is that correct or is it wrong? How do we look at this? Yeah, so it really is the integrated supply chain that, that matters. It's it's not always just just the resource. Again, you know, some minerals, you know, will have a natural resource sort of you know strategic advantages. You know, you you talk about uh, Russia, you know, in the nickel complex in Norilsk. You know, this is a geologic anomaly uh, that feeds a lot of the world's you know nickel and palladium. You know, we, we have these sort of geologic anomalies uh, in in many different commodities. But again, that doesn't really set the marginal cost. That that's really just sort of the base supply of a lot of these minerals. But really, the challenge in supply chains going forward in this in this great electrification of the global economy, you know, towards more renewables, you know, getting off of that eighty percent of hydrocarbons and, and moving that more towards elect electrification, it's going to be so metal intensive. And one of the big problems is is not actually the upstream part; it, it's really the smelters and refiners, and that's really a place that China has really dominated over the last. 20 years. So even if we did want to mine more rare earth deposits, we don't have the processing and the midstream uh, production. And I would say a lot of that has to do with environmental policies. You know, people just don't want those types of processing in their backyard. And that's that's been an issue. And so if I look at, you know, specifically what's happening in China, particularly, you know, going back to their 2060 uh, decarbonization goals, I actually believe that China will be uh, will stop being a net exporter of, of things like steel and some of the more intermediate commodities uh, that we've relied on over the last 20 years uh, because of some of these goals, because they want to upgrade their environment. So if we've now got you know some industries 60, 70 percent consolidation or more of that midstream production, uh, you know smelting and refining, you know happening in China, and then they switch to not being wanting to be an exporter anymore, this is going to become very problematic uh, for a lot of the EV goals of, of many other countries. And so you know this I do believe is a big issue, uh, is that we just have not been building many uh, smelters and refiners in our backyard the last 20 years. Josh, earlier you had mentioned the bumper sticker at the Colorado School of Mining, you know, mine the earth first and other planets later. Uh, this question of decarbonization also brings up the question of how much land it takes to put up 
enough solar panels and enough windmills. I saw a chart recently that showed that per kilowatt hour, it might be 30 times as much land needed for solar as for a more conventional plant. Do you think that's going to become an important issue, or do you think we've got enough sunny fields and unoccupied places in the States that it will not be a major obstacle to decarbonization? I think it will be a big obstacle because of the, you know, again, the the politics of, of land. And, and I would also add water in there. Most of these resources, it's it's not really a question of absolute scarcity. You know, a lot of times it comes down to land and water. Those are the, the biggest pieces of the politics. Again, if we're trying to project, you know, what we have today and try to scale it, you know, moving from, again, 80% hydrocarbon and, and you know, in a much smaller piece in, in renewables to try to flip that around, you know, the, what, what happened, you know, even over the last few years, which have been incredible in bringing down the costs of, of solar and wind, projecting that whole thing at scale, I don't think is, you know, yet achievable. And, and land and water and, and metals and smelting is, is going to be a big part of that. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets featuring Josh Crum, founder and CEO of ABEX. Next Saturday, I will hand the microphone back to my co-host, Michelle Dennedy, as she explores the role of digital innovation in advancing the ESG economy over the course of a five-part miniseries. Michelle's first guest of the series is Gajin Kandaya, CEO of Hitachi Vantara. Gajin leads Hitachi Vandara's 11,000 employees with a focus on leveraging the company's digital infrastructure, software, and services to meet the business and cultural transformational needs of his clients and help them contribute to the advancement of a more inclusive and sustainable future. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets, your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via social media and word of mouth. On behalf of ABEX Technologies, I'm Todd Buchholz. I look forward to joining you again on Saturday, June 26th, after the conclusion of Michelle's much-anticipated five-part series. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Markets.